The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone, and a big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. Feel free to introduce yourself at the end of the program if you'd like. It's always nice to meet people who are showing up at the center. If you have any questions about how this place works, just come on up. So before um, we continue, tonight will be actually the last night we'll be talking about why speech as a place of practice, but I just want to see if there are any questions about the guided meditation tonight or just generally about the practice before I continue with my talk. Anything that is confusing you about the practice or something coming up that's challenging, you don't know how to work with, that you want to bring up. And you probably can understand, it may not be useful for you to bring it up, but often it's very useful for the rest of us to hear what's going on in other people's practice. On the one hand, it really normalizes the practice when people talk about what's happening. And uh, yeah, it's just really informative. Go ahead. Yeah. So if you didn't hear him, he, he mentioned that sometimes in practice the mind starts to dream. And you can do you can dream even without falling asleep, right? And in Buddhism or in meditation circles you might call that like a trance, or when the mind is quiet and somewhat settled and it starts to get pleasant sometimes for people. And then the interesting thing about Pleasantness, when it arises, is the mind doesn't feel like it has to practice when things are pleasant. It feels like, I can relax. <laughs> and so we, the part of the practice that's about being interested, which is really central, you know, it's as important as anything, to actually be interested with what's coming and going in a truthful way. And that's what we've been talking about a lot lately. How do have that, uh, how to cultivate and strengthen that value of truthfulness, like that really wanting to connect. And when things are feeling pretty good, there's a very strong habit energy that this is a good time to relax because I feel safe, it feels pleasant. And so the, the trick would be, or the practice place would be, not to get confused by the pleasantness. Because once you're already in that place, of a lot of tranquility and no interest, you're going to either fall asleep, literally fall asleep, so you, you do this sort of not thing, or you get into some trance state, or you do this sort of dreamy stuff. Right? So, And these places are often pleasant, but there's no learning. So that's the downside. And not only is there no learning, but it becomes... Uh, it's like we cut a groove so the next time we sit, it's more likely we'll do the same thing. And then the next time, even more likely. And all of a sudden, it becomes a very strong habit. Every time we sit, after 10 minutes or 5 minutes or whatever, the mind slides back into that place. And there are a lot of experienced meditators who've been meditating for years, sit every day, but they spend a lot of time in these dreamy, trance-like, sleepy states. And at the end of their sit, it feels like a, like a really good rest, and it is. It's kind of like a power nap in a way. But over time, there's no deep insight, no real transformation 
of one's personality and one's life um, that you get with insight. So the key would be as tranquility begins, as the mind settles and there's just more calm and tranquility, the pleasantness of that has to be noticed. In the same way you notice knee pain or an irritating sound or some leftover tension in the body from a difficult experience earlier in the day, you know, we get really good at noticing the, how the body or mind is bound up from earlier in the day. We need to have just as much interest and sophistication, refined sensitivity to the pleasant states, the, the pleasantness of calm, the energy of joy, all of the pleasant states. Because not seeing pleasantness means the mind is deluded by it. There's no like middle ground. Either you're clearly seeing these pleasant states when they arise, or the mind's being deluded, meaning the pleasantness is having its conditioned effect on the mind, which for almost everybody is, I don't really need to be alert because it feels really good now. It's like Saturday afternoon after a hard day of work and you lie on the couch, you know, and you're in your place and no one's calling you, and, and it's like, this is a perfect time just to veg out because I'm safe. And it's that same sort of thing in a set. It's like, I'm in a really quiet place. So really, you know, really good, really relaxed. I'm just going to veg out. And the mind does. That's exactly what it does. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's a good point. And, and every newer and but also experienced meditator has to be on the lookout for getting trapped in cycles of, sometimes I call it la-la land, you know, and cause, because it's pleasant, you can get in that groove for a long time where that's just what the mind does when it meditates. It goes to la-la land, it always feels good, but we're not learning anything. And remember, it's not about conceptual learning, like I'm thinking through my life and now I've got a better story, which can be very useful. But that's not the kind of learning I'm talking about. It's a much more, you know, that's why we call this tradition insight meditation. We're just seeing something about the nature of the mind that it hasn't been seen before. So one of my teachers says about insight, it's always surprising. When the mind wakes up and sees something that it hasn't seen, it's always shocking. It doesn't matter if we can know it conceptually, like conceptually we know everything's changing. But when the mind actually sees the changing nature of conditions, of present moment, it's shocking. Really. It's really shocking when we see the ephemeral nature, the changing nature, the impersonal nature, any, any of these underlying aspects and it wouldn't matter if you had a PhD in Buddhist philosophy and you know this stuff cold. wouldn't matter. When, the, when you see it as it is, as opposed to as a, a theory, a conceptual theory model, it shocks the mind. And that's the kind of insight we lose when we're just inhabiting these kind of soft, pleasant, fuzzy, sleepy, dreamy states. And they're really common for all of us, even very experienced meditators. We have to, because you know, the more the system, the mind settles, the, um, the difference between being really right in the middle, very clear, 
doing inside practice and being asleep, it's like razor thin. So you can see people, or you might notice yourself, you're like really there, the mind feels right in balance, and then in no time, I mean less than a second, you can lose, like basically what happens is the awareness loses connection with the vibrancy of the present moment. And you can do this just by thinking about something. But thinking about something is not being aware of what's present. And so you lose the energy of being in the present moment and the whole mind collapses into unconsciousness. It's interesting at nighttime, if you intend to be mindful as you're falling asleep, you'll notice a similar process where you're kind of settling in, you know, you're lying there, getting eventually relaxed. And before you, often before you fall asleep, you'll notice the mind just starts to think about something ordinary. It can even be a little nonsensical, what you bring to mind. Just, but it's some content, some content, so the mind doesn't have to be awake when it falls asleep. I don't really want to be there when this happens. So I'll just absorb into this content and then it just sort of happens, you know, on the periphery or something. So notice that in your sit, like you might be vividly clear, moment to moment, aware of the breath, the body, thoughts are just thoughts, sensations are just sensations, sounds are just sounds. You've got some great continuity, vivid, clear, relaxed, balanced. And then... The mind starts to get, not just think, but lost in the thought. So it's not aware that a thought is just a thought because it's lost in the thinking, unaware that it's thinking. And then the energy, the brightness, was dependent on being in the present moment. So as soon as that's lost, the balance of the system is lost and the whole thing collapses. It's like an implosion. You've got all this refinement, but no energy now. So the whole thing just sort of goes to sleep in an instant. So this is a sign when you you see this happening, like you felt really balanced and clear, and then you're kind of doing that nod thing, that dip thing. Then the key is correlate the lack of energy, the dropping of the energy with the losing of the what's predominant or losing the thread of the present moment. Because it's the connection with the present moment that, that brightens the mind because it's so vivid. Yeah. Maybe time for one more comment. Yes, please. Nice and loud. Tom, would you get the mic? Right. And it's a good point. So if I could just reinterpret, let me know if this sounds right. But, you know, we're sitting there and I gave the instruction that isn't it nice that we don't have to do anything. We don't have to pick up the content, the stories of our life. We could just be in the experience. But it doesn't mean that there aren't stories. It just means, isn't it nice that we don't have to pick them up and run with them? So in a way, when we train, for example, to be aware of the body or the breath moving in the body, we're not saying no to thoughts because that would be aversion and that would make the mind and body tight. But what we're saying is, Yes to the sensations as they come and go. Yes to the sensations of the breath as they come and go. And basically, yes to everything else in and of itself, in it, you know, the way it is. So when the thoughts are coming and going, 
let's say, in the periphery, we're not saying no to them. We're saying, yes, that's just thoughts, thoughts being known. So we're not confused by the content of the thought, right? So like I could have the thought, this is a great sit. If I get, if I take that, the content of that thought personally, I might feel compelled to have another thought following that thought. Yeah, this is the best sit I've ever had. I wonder if it's as good as that sit I had, right? And the proliferation begins. But if I realize, but that's just a thought. That's a different relationship. That basically, the mind is saying, the content's not important. What's actually important, it's just this little mental activity we call thought. You know, and if there's a charge, then that charge is just some emotional charge that feels like this. So. What we're saying when I say like we don't have to pick it up is we don't have to live in this moment in terms of the stories we have about our life, about what's important, about the past, about the future. We can live and relate in a more elemental way. Sounds are just sounds, sights are just sights. Thoughts are just thoughts, emotions are just emotions, sensations are just sensations. So it's like, you know, you can think of it as shifting into a different reality, a non-conceptual reality. And it's such a relief to not live in terms of the stories we have about me and this and that and good and bad. We're not saying no to that, but that it's like a parallel reality we're just not inhabiting. And it's there. Right? And it's in motion in a way, because thinking and telling, repeating those stories like that inner dialogue, the inner narration, it may be continuing. And we don't have to pathologize it as, I shouldn't be thinking. You know, what am I doing thinking? Because that's just more thinking, of course. But it's like we let that be a parallel universe. We could be evaluating if we're doing a good job or a bad job. We could be doing all kinds of things with our thinking mind. But I'm not going to pick it up. And if that stuff has momentum and continues on its own, fine. And if it that thinking stuff quiets down, great. But it's just thinking, regardless. A lot of thinking, a little thinking, no thinking. It's just thinking. Just like seeing is just seeing. We can't really stop seeing. Even when we close our eyes, there's still visual experience happening. Auditory experience is happening. Even if the room is silent, we're hearing the silence, right? Seeing happens, hearing happens, thinking happens, or mental activity, right? Images are moving, thoughts are moving. So there's this flow of all these six sense gates, the five physical senses, and then the movement of the mind. The mind is sensitive to mental activity in the same way that the mind-body is sensitive to sound, and sight, and touch, and taste, and smell. And all these things are just flowing. And so when I say we don't have to pick it up, we're just realizing that can be enough, just that, that all those six things are moving, and that there's an awareness that they're moving, that they're coming and going. And it's so nice to let it be this simple. And then when we do pick it up, and we interpret what we're seeing or we compare what we're hearing to what we heard before or we're thinking about something or planning something, then it's like it's so fresh knowing that we can put it down. But if we never put it down, 
having to have a story is really oppressive. They, it, it feel, we feel imprisoned by everything, all of our judgments and analyses and interpretations. But when we can put it down, drop it, that's what's so great and healthy about deep sleep. Because in those moments, every day, hopefully, we put it down. That kind of, it's not even like, because in dream states, you know, when we're sleeping and we're dreaming, it's basically not so different. You know, we feel imprisoned by the realities we're constructing in the dream states like we do with the realities we're constructing in our waking states. So I want to save some time to finish up our conversation now, I think five or six weeks on right speech, why speech. And I mentioned already tonight how it's connected to this more central value of truthfulness. And I started out that first week right after the new year um, talking about how central this commitment to truthfulness is. I mean, it's really at the heart of the teachings of the Buddha. It's um, the Buddha in the Buddha's analysis of his own life, his own mind, and then those around him. He saw that the one problem, it, you know, it isn't the world that the pro- that's a problem or having a body that ages and dies. That's not the problem. The problem is ignorance or the habits of the mind to misperceive what's happening. And then we get caught in this pattern of deception, self-deception, where we start to believe the misinterpretations as being the truth. And then we live our lives based on these deceptions, these misperceptions, and you know how it is like when we're living a lie, but then we have to massage reality to fit the misinterpretation. So like if I think I'm the best in the world or I think I'm the worst in the world, then if someone, like if I think I'm the worst in the world and somebody actually cares about me and loves me, I have to somehow massage that experience like they're crazy <laughs> you know, or they don't know what they're doing or they, they don't know the real me, because if they did, they wouldn't love me, they wouldn't care about me, right? So that's just a simple example of how we do that. Or if we, there's been some jokes going on around uh, one of the political um, people running for the presidents, and uh, he uh, said, he's a conservative person, and he said some things recently that uh, a lot of the liberal-leaning people believe in, and they, they, there's like some cartoons about the crisis. Like, I can't be agreeing with this person. <laughs> you know, like, that doesn't fit in the stories I tell myself. And then this person says something that's shockingly true, you know. Like, oh, no. <laughs> I have to pretend that just didn't happen because I'm living the life that this person is ap- opposite of me. They don't think what I think. So it's just interesting to see this. This is our central problem. We perceive based on habits. Our habits aren't very good, some of them at least. And so we're misperceiving a lot of the time. And then we build our stories on those misperceptions so we become dependent on them. So whenever truth, the sort of way it is, it kind of shows up, 
there's that stressful activity of massaging it to ignore what challenges our set ideas because we're more dependent on our set ideas than this value of truth and wanting to see things as they are. So, And then right speech is right in line with this because speech is sort of the outer expression of this value of self-honesty or this, this deep... Um, appropriate fear of self-deception. This is from a wonderful book. Uh, Reb Anderson, Minnesota guy, who went to California way back when and was one of the early um, Western Zen students at the San Francisco Zen Center with Suzuki Roshi back in the late 60s and early 70s and became a well-known teacher. He wrote a wonderful book called Being Upright. And one of the chapters is on wise speech. And he talks about this, I think, in a really good way. He says, not only is speaking the truth difficult when we are entangled in self-concern, but lying itself provokes anxiety because of feelings of shame and fear of being caught in the lie. Because we feel anxious and uncomfortable when we are aware that we are, when we are aware that we are lying, it's easier for us to lie when we're unaware of doing so. Right? I often think of, speaking of politicians, that a really good politician, in order to be a really good politician, at least a certain kind of politician, is to train yourself to be unaware when you're telling a lie so that you don't realize you're telling a lie. And in that moment, you actually believe you're telling the truth. Right? Because... What we pick up, you know, we pick up when people are manipulating the truth. We can, some of us, you know, if we're sensitive and we're kind of questioning, we might pick that up. But it's more seductive when somebody is practiced being unaware of not telling the truth, right? Believing your own mistruths, basically. And Reb goes on. Because we feel anxious and uncomfortable when we are aware that we are lying, it's easier for us to lie when we're unaware of doing so. Thus, carelessness and self-deception smooth the path of deceiving others. And we can lie more convincingly if we are lying to ourselves. With the aid of such denial, we can be confidently self-righteous even when we're lying. Furthermore, Lying is easier if we lack the wholesome self-respect that comes with a commitment to speaking the truth. And boy, I think that paragraph kind of sums up what's happening. And it's, and it's appropriately scary when we see um, this. And it's not just the people at the other spectrum, whatever spectrum you put, uh, end of the spectrum you place yourself. It's not just the people at the other end that are careless with the facts or can justify manipulating, leaving shading, leaving some of the information out. Even the people we like do that. And we feel justified in doing it, don't we? Because they're doing it. Oh, I can't, I can't really be accurate because then it's too complicated and everybody stops listening and how am I going to compete with these other ideas that are being 
sold in this simplistic way or this exaggerated way. So we always feel justified in terms of our conversations about politics, about social justice issues. It's complicated. Uh, Wynne and I, my wife and I, were at the uh, Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Um, earlier in January. Saw it for the first time. It's a really powerful place right off the mall in Washington, D.C. And we uh, did a tour. There was somebody doing a tour, really did a really good job, I thought. And it's a, it's a hard to take. I mean, it, you, I don't know how people do it without being able to really be present because it's not easy to take it all in. But interestingly, this person, and I thought appropriately, he, I think, said maybe 30 times in the course of this hour and a half tour, it's complicated. I really like that. You know, when he would talk about the German people or the SS or the, the other citizens or whatever, any group, he, he would sort of lay out the facts as people thought they knew them, as the you know, people who put the exhibits together understood them. But he would always end by saying, it's complicated. Or, which I interpreted as sort of saying that uh, nothing's perfectly clear how this happened, why this happened, what the motives were. I mean, he wasn't saying that horrendous things weren't done, that people were really sick in their fear or anger or hatred, but he wasn't uh, not wanting to leave it black and white, good and bad, evil and not evil. It's, It's complicated. All of it is complicated. And this is, uh, this is one of the things, this uh, understanding how difficult this commitment to speaking truthfully, speaking wisely, we have to understand it's complicated. And this is another piece of this sharing from Reb Anderson that I wanted to bring up because I think it's so useful about how we need to listen deeply and we need each other actually to speak the truth. It's not like any one of us has the window on the truth. The truth comes out in this process of trying to understand the truth in a way, right? And listening and responding. So let me just read a little bit more here from this chapter, a little further in. He says, The primary harm to yourself of not telling the truth is that after a while you forget that you're lying and your mind becomes diluted and confused. Telling the truth is really hard. It takes courage and attention. And you can't tell the truth all by yourself. You have to work it out with others. That's the line I like. You remember last week I I explained sort of the Buddha's uh, model or instructions. He said, you know, if it's not true and not beneficial and unpleasant, don't say it. But even if it's true but not beneficial and unpleasant, don't say it. And if it's untrue and unbeneficial and pleasant, don't say it. If it's true and unbeneficial and pleasant, don't say it. So the only time you say something, if it's true, beneficial, 
regardless of it's pleasant or unpleasant. But then you've got to find the right time and place to say it. Right? So it's okay to say something that's true and beneficial and unpleasant, but you should be really thoughtful about when. Right? Because you want it to be functional. You want, if you're going to say something that's going to be hurtful to somebody, you want to make sure that it's useful, it's going to be functional, it's going to evoke the change that needs to happen. So you need to be conscious of when and where, how you say it. And then he goes on a little later and says, Buddha said that you should not speak the truth uh, when it's harmful. Buddha said that you should not speak the truth when it is harmful. But we need to distinguish between what is harmful and what is hurtful. Hurtful. And this is, he's just, I like the way that he's using this language here because we're not, when we say something that's hurtful, it's bec- it, that means it's painful, but we're not trying to harm the person, we're trying to help the person. So this is important for people who are activists. Sometimes we need to speak truth to power. Sometimes we need to say things that's going to evoke a very painful reaction, or, but it's what needs to happen. And this is especially true if something, if some group or some truth hasn't been spoken for a long time because maybe there's some fear or maybe there's some oppression. And then finally conditions shift and now some people are starting to say things. And you see this happening slowly around issues of racial justice where there's more people finding ways to say things, pointing out like how the criminal justice system isn't perfect, you know, and it's hard to hear that because in some way we're all complicit, right? We're all living in this world where a lot of people get incarcerated and you could look at any individual case and it might make sense to us, but when you look at the statistics, it doesn't, at least to me, make sense. So when people start to speak to this, it might sort of shock the system a little bit, like, you know, police aren't bad or people are doing the best they can. But sometimes that's exactly what has to happen to sort of wake us up a little bit. Wait a minute, something is off and it doesn't feel good because we don't really have a good story. We're in that place of, I don't know what's going on, but it doesn't look good, it doesn't feel good. And so Reb Anderson is distinguishing, well, it's probably true that we shouldn't intend to harm people, but sometimes people are going to hurt when I speak, when I do things, right? It's going to hurt. But I'm not trying to harm people. I'm trying to do something that's actually good for us all. And it can be messy. But, you know, a lot of times in healing, it gets messy before it gets harmonious or gets healthy. It needs to get messy sometimes. There's a little bit more here I want to read. Sometimes people tell you the truth and it hurts a lot, but it's very helpful. For example, someone might say to you, I'd like to talk to you about the way you treated that person. Would you like to hear about that? And you say, if you think it might be helpful to me, then I do. And that's sort of what we'd say if we were in a good place, right? I mean, isn't it true? Like if one of you came up to me after a talk and said, I need to, I'd, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about what you said tonight 
it, um, but I want to, you know, I want to check. Like, do you are you interested in hearing it? And I might say, well, not right now, because <laughs> sometimes, you know, after you perform or after you give a talk or after you're on whatever on is for you, you know, your teenage daughter or son, you know, wants to give you some feedback on how you are as a parent. You might help them find the right time and place when you might actually be able to hear them, right? Like after telling them they're grounded for two weeks, that may not be the time, but maybe later, you know, when you're 28. (laughs) 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 But, But we could imagine that, I mean, theoretically, I really want to know from my spouse when I'm off. But... Practically, I'm not always ready to hear it, right? So this is that dance in relationships like it probably is good to hear. It probably, even at the right time, is going to be painful when we hear things, you know, when somebody's basically reflecting back something we're not seeing clearly. It hurts. It's humiliating. But it's really good because personally, I don't want to be the person who doesn't know who I am and how I'm acting, like being a jerk or being unconscious. I mean, this again, this, re, this refers back to this issue of social justice and like in my case, being a privileged person, being well-educated, being a white person, being a straight person, having a lot of advantages. And uh, when it gets pointed out to me, how privileged I am, you know, it's like, and I've been working on this the last year, couple years, and it's like, uh, I just notice it's really unpleasant to own that. But it feels really enlivening, even though it's really unpleasant, it's really enlivening to start to understand that my privilege means somebody else's oppression or not privilege, or whatever that is. And uh doesn't mean I have a brilliant answer about what to do about that, but that being like letting in the uncomfortableness of that and the sort of historic legacy of all that, like that feels good to let it in, but it's really unpleasant, to be honest, and to kind of keep that in view as I live my life, more and more at least. So the last paragraph here. When she tells you how, how you've harmed or discouraged the other person, you feel terrible. It really hurts you to hear these things about yourself. But it doesn't harm you. At the very least, it encourage you, encourages you to be honest with yourself and to pay attention. If you can listen to this painful information about yourself, then you can begin to take responsibility for your actions. You understand how powerful you are and how you might be harming others. Being upright in the midst of your discomfort, your mind opens to the dynamic of interdependence with others. And the last thing he says at the end of this chapter is, again, he just makes that point about how dependent, like in terms of this value of truth, to really understand the truth and to speak the truth means we have to understand the limitations of our view. Uh, some of you know 
Common Ground, a lot of our leaders were doing this this 10-week anti-racism training every Monday morning for four hours. And there's like, it's an academic course. We're doing a lot of study besides the circle work we do on Monday morning. And uh, it's, you know, as you can say, I'm talking about it a little bit more because it's fresh in my mind. And one of the things we understand about that work is it's not like any one of us knows the truth. We find the truth by talking and listening to each other. And this is true like in relationships, in your families, in all of our communities. The truth isn't owned by any one person. Okay, Here's the truth. I mean, some person in any one moment might be able to some degree to speak for the group, to kind of collectively have heard collectively and then mirror it back in a really clear, articulate way for the whole group. But the fact is we need each other to have a sense of what's going on. I like what is the truth. We have to hear. We have to be willing to listen. We actually have to be interested. So like even in terms of where we are, who we are, how I'm doing, it's a collective. The truth is collective. And this is this means it's messy. It's just so much easier when we think we can own it. You know, like no, no, don't talk to me because it confuses me. I mean, that not that <laughs> sometimes it's like... Or, and, and a lot of people have talked about this these days because of the uh, amount of information that's available and the great diversity of the Internet. We, can, we get very good at finding those information sources that already align with the way our mind works and don't contradict us. And then... And then we miss that opportunity. You know, we call it rubbing and, rubbing and scrubbing. It's like what's nice to dig in, whether it's a partnership, an intimate relationship, or being part of a community, or living in a group household, or doing activist work together, doing community work together. It's always difficult because they don't think the right way, the way you think, or the way I think, Right? And we have trouble, like, oh. But maybe that's the whole point, like to work together, like to learn to see this person, their particular point of view is part of the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. It's part of it. I wish I was looking for the, the reference to this. Maybe one of you knows, but I, some of you probably know Malcolm Gladwell, who writes for The New Yorker and has written a number of bestseller best-selling books, mostly nonfiction, I think, maybe all nonfiction. But anyway, uh, one of his books long ago, maybe one of you know the title, he talked about how uh, there's a way of figuring things out that depends on the collective. You know, like he gives an example, and again, I'm a little vague on this, but uh, I think during World War II or during the Cold War, a submarine uh, sank with some nuclear weapons. I forget whose they were, the British or some, I don't know. And uh, everybody was looking for it, the Chinese, the Americans, everybody was looking, like, where is the sub? And they couldn't find it. And at some point, because there's this new, there's new theory, I don't know if it's related to some mathematical theory, but that if you survey enough people who know just a little bit, they're not like experts, 
or where that submarine should be, but they, they got bits of the pieces of information. And you just survey. The important thing is to get a high end, a lot of people. And you average out where they think that submarine is as opposed to people, no, no, I think it's here or I think it's there. And it's sort of, it's part of this theory that truth, that's like there's something in the collective that uh, can capture or can kind of hone in on the truth in a way an individual never will. And it really contradicts the sense of self because one of the aspects of this deluded sense we all have of somehow being apart, being separate, being necessary, right? Isn't it true that we feel necessary? My existence feels necessary. But the, it doesn't take much reflection to realize, no, our existence is not necessary. It's contingent. It's like it's there because of so many conditions. And if any of those conditions weren't there... I was reading a book by Stephen Batchelor. It's a great book. Oh, it has devil in the title. Anyway, he's a well-known Buddhist author, teacher. And uh, he tells a story when he was six or seven. And he was with his mom. And they were looking through some old photographs. And um, he sees this soldier. And uh, his mom says to him, you know, if things had been different, he would have been your father, right? You can imagine someone saying that, like an old flame. And I think he was a precocious kid because he had this thought then that like, no, if things were different, would I be me? You know, would I still be me if that was my dad? But, you know, it's just sort of, so he had a, he had a mind and the Buddhist bent of things from way back. And that's sort of like to get that we're contingent. Nobody were this these sort of things that just have a little window on reality. And actually, like in a Buddhist sense, where I was talking about insight earlier, insight is really an honest appreciation of the limitations of what this is. Because that honest appreciation of limitations undermines the arrogant sense of self as a separate, necessary, permanent entity. That just doesn't hold up when we have a more nuanced, refined, honest sense of what's happening here. This contingent self or this contingent reality that we are expressing. Contingent in the sense that it arises out of these innumerable causes and conditions which are themselves very dynamic. They're changing. They're coming and going, right? And you know how that is, how things can change on a dime. Even communities can. Like I was uh, on a long retreat when 9-11 happened. I was in Burma. I was completely... And so I didn't get the trauma of watching endless news on that day, right? And it was very interesting to come back and see what a shift. It's like the virus of fear, even people who know better, right? You couldn't help avoid that effect. I mean, I got sucked in too, of course, just later. But th- the point is, as a, even as a community, you know, that thinks we have these values and then something happens and values shift. And the community, the wider community, does things that maybe 
before we never thought we would do. Right? And this happens over and over again. Where you see somebody who has certain values and then something happens, they get cancer or somebody shoots their parent and now they have different values. Oh. So who are we? Right? Shifts. So there are a few minutes left. It'd be um, nice to hear. Well, let me just read one line from the Buddha and then we'll open it up for conversation. This is a nice passage to end with from the Buddha. He says, They speak the truth. They are devoted to the truth. Reliable. These are people who have integrated wise speech. They speak the truth, are devoted to the truth, reliable, worthy of confidence. They never knowingly deceive others for the sake of their own advantage. What they have heard here, they do not, do not repeat there, so as to cause dissension there. Thus they unite those that are divided, and those that are united they encourage. Gla- uh, concord gladdens them. They delight and rejoice in concord. And it is in concord that they spread by their words. But remember, sometimes to get to harmony, you have to expose what's not being spoken or what's not being seen. They avoid harsh language, speak words that are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving, going to the heart, courteous and dear, agreeable by many to many. They avoid vain talk, speak at the right time, in accordance with facts, speak what is useful, speak about right wisdom and right practice. Their speech is like a treasure at the right moment, accompanied by reasoned arguments, moderate and full of sense. Wouldn't that be nice? So we have uh, about eight minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a few folks. Uh, We can't find our handheld mic right now, so if if you do speak up, speak nice and loud so everybody can hear you. What comes to mind? What lessons from your own life do you have about wise speech that you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, please. Yeah, did everybody hear him? So I think the Buddha would say that you don't, you don't knowingly speak a mistruth because it affects our mind. And... It probably affects the other, what well, does affect the other person too, but it definitely affects our own mind. And it may initially, it is initially a lot harder to say something to our partner that's true and also takes care of them. You know, and how you do that is, like I said, it's challenging. You know, you might ask, well, what are you, how are you feeling? Oh, I feel good. Well, that's great that you feel good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Does that not work? <laughs> but, but the thing is, by saying these, these seemingly innocent things, we have to, maybe not in that moment, but in the moments after when we're alone, we have to realize what we're reinforcing. Often superficial things. <coughs> the person might have a momentary sense of feeling good about themselves, but they might then have a lifelong greater dependency on something that's superficial. You know, so maybe in that moment, you know, you know, you know, to say something that's true, like, you know I love being around you, you know, or even something like, 
you're delicious, <laughs> right? So you can be flirtatious, but you're not commenting on the visual form, right? Or you could check and see, are you really asking me to comment on you know, the presentation? Do you want me to comment? Because sometimes people want to know, like, does this shirt look good? You know, they really not. So you could ask that clarifying question, what do you want from me right now? But to do it in an appropriate way. <laughs> I mentioned this several weeks ago about NVC, nonviolent communication, as one of the things that are good is they ground healthy conversation or communication on understanding each other's needs. So it's really nice for both of you in that situation to know what is this person's needs right now? Do I really get what their needs are? And do they get what my needs are? Like, I don't want to upset you, you know? And I don't want to be in this trap of always having to uh, say something nice to you. Like, I don't want to be in this neurotic thing of feeding you compliments. And then, yeah, because it doesn't feel good to either of us, probably. Yeah, and that's the thing. is If we're invested in our relationship for the long term, we're, we're more motivated to do the difficult work at really being honest about our needs so we don't get in these unhealthy patterns that eventually implode. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's a good, good comment. Yeah, why don't you use the mic? Remember to speak right into it. I'm going to pass it behind you. Yeah, I mean, what's in the way of insight? The way, in the way of insight is superficiality and distractedness. And the, the biggest cause for distractedness is the mind is fixed on, the, and on an idea that it already thinks is true. And when we think I know who I am or I think I know who you are, you know, I already got you, I know who you are, then we stop showing up. And so when we stop showing up with real presence, open, undefended, not fixed, doesn't mean we don't have ideas, but the mind isn't holding in an arrogant way, attached with certainty to anything. So then there, we're in this really ripe place where we can see something fresh or new, right? Because precisely because of the lack of fixedness. So there's a sense you, you'll get this in practice, like even when you're with your breath, so in the most simple ordinary moments of your formal sitting meditation practice. You'll be with your breath, but there'll be a real sense of profound humility. Like everything's happening, the breath is happening, sensations are happening, sounds are happening, thoughts maybe are happening. But the mind, the thinking mind isn't defining it. And the mind isn't caught in a fixed idea about who I am, what's happening to me. It's just not, and, and things are what we would call open. That's what I mean by the sense of humility. Things are undefined, unformed. They're open. And this is what has the flavor of liberation. Liberation, freedom that we talk about in this path of awakening, is not a fixed certainty. And a lot of times we think about truth in that way, like I got the truth, it's my truth, I got it. You know, and it's like we can beat other people up with it because it's true. And this is called like fundamentalism, where it's like my truth is bigger than your truth. 
My truth is righter than your truth. But real truth is moment to moment. It's ephemeral. Like, what's true in this moment in terms of like what's happening, what's appropriate, appropriate response, appropriate thing to say, there's no way to know what's right or appropriate in this moment without being radically present because that's where the appropriate response comes from, being radically present, not from a fixed idea. So I often say this in terms of relationship, like going home tonight if you live with someone. Instead of having a fixed idea how to have a good moment with that person, instead have a good strategy of being radically present. No fixed idea. And you might actually have moments of real beautiful relating with that real beautiful moments with that human being or that cat or that dog or whatever, yourself. Precisely because you don't have a fixed idea of how to have a beautiful moment. Right? So we're f- we figure our life out, we figure our relationships out moment by moment by moment. Now, now that doesn't mean that brilliant ideas won't arise. Oh, this is what I should be doing in this situation. Or this is what we as a nation should be doing. Right? But we still don't fix on it. It's just like some clarity. The window opens. We see, oh yeah. So we do. It's like, you know, we're walking up a mountain and we're in a dense jungle. But then, you know, we take a turn and there's an open field and we get a clear view at the peak. Oh, that's where I'm going. And then the next moment we're back in the woods and we don't really know what we're doing, but there's a path and we're doing the best we can and we get off the path, we find it. So we do have moments of clarity, but we realize they're episodic. Like it will, it will be lost. Like it's some clarity and then it's gone. And, there, it's gone. and then there might be a reverberation, but that reverberation is, yeah, I had some clarity. Not I have it, but I had some. And that was cause for faith to keep going, but now I don't have it. So those insights are like that. We have some real clarity and we know that this path is working. But then we're back to being an ordinary human being where we lose it, we have greed that dominates the mind, we have anger that dominates the mind, and we just do our best and we use each other to figure out the way. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Let's just take a couple seconds and let go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.